Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 8. As I mentioned last week, uh, Justin is on his sabbatical for the month of um, July. This is what the month is. And uh, he asked me to, to fill in for him and preach a, a topic of sermons. And I said last week it was going to be four sermons, but actually the month of July is five. So you're stuck with me for four more weeks and not three more weeks. But what I want to do during that time was to preach through uh, a, a group of psalms. And what we chose was uh, the messianic or what we often call the royal psalms. These are a, a cluster, a group of psalms that speak of the uh, of a king, a great king. And uh, normally in the setting of the book of Psalms, they simply refer to a Davidic king, but as you read through these Psalms, uh, you notice that there's often something missing, something lacking in uh, what they say about this king or what we see in the king, David, compared to this king being spoken of, and those are often fulfilled in the person of Christ. They're completed in Christ himself. This thing is uh, making a lot of noise. Is there something I'm doing wrong? Looks like they're fixing it back there. Okay. So I think there's a wind. In fact, it may be this fan here. I think that's what it is. that better? Okay, yeah. Somebody put a fan down here blowing up in my face and that was causing the problem. So uh, anyway, so we're going to be looking at uh, five of these psalms. Last week we looked at Psalm 2. Today we're going to look at Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is kind of a, an odd one because it not seen as a royal or a messianic psalm, but it fits so well as we're going to see the end of today. Let me see if I can get this guy on here. I need some air blowing across me. I had this one last week, so I know this will work. Okay. Sound okay? No? Wind blowing? Okay, good. Uh, it's normally not seen as a, uh, a messianic or even a royal psalm, but it fits so well with the apostles use it with... Uh 10. We're going to sort of look at it today, uh, make some application and some have some thoughts about it, and then really combine it with Psalm 110 next week to show how this psalm fits so well with, with the reigning and with the ruling Christ that is predicted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. So I'll go ahead and read the psalm, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then uh, start digging in and seeing what the uh, Lord says to us through this wonderful, wonderful psalm. Reading glasses on. It's titled, How Majestic Is Your Name to the Choir Master, According to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the See, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
And there's sort of a, a, a definite structure in this psalm here. Uh, there's a praising the name of the Lord uh, in verse 1. He speaks in verse 3 through 5, uh, the weakness of man. And then in verses 6 through 9, he speaks of the authority of man, as we'll see in our interpretation, that authority despite the apparent weakness of man. And then we see this praising the name of the Lord repeated again. And we'll see why he actually repeats this again and what our response should be to that repeating. It's what's called an inclusio, meaning there's a a phrase at the beginning of the psalm or a poem, and the same uh, phrase is repeated at the very end of it, an inclusio. We'll see the the significance of that uh, literary structure as well. And sort of the the structure of these psalms or these uh, sermons is that we're going to look at the the psalm uh, the exact way that the writer or readers of this psalm in David's day would have looked at it. We're not going to look back to what they understood about scriptures, but we're not going to go ahead until we get to the very end and start making application and reflections upon what these psalms are saying. So our interpretation, we're not going to be peeking into the New Testament or into Isaiah to see how it looks at these things, but stick right with what the writer or reader of this psalm would have understood in the day that it was written. And then we'll jump forward and make application in the uh, the end of the sermon under what I'm calling reflections. So it starts off with, O Lord, our Lord. Well, the text uses the word Lord twice here. If you look very carefully at the first word, Lord, after the word O, uh, you'll see that there's a uh, lower caps. There's a big L and there's O-R-D, but they're actually in uppercase, not in lowercase. And then the second use of the word Lord is how we would normally do things with the uppercase and then three lowercase, lowercase L-O-R-D. And what the translators are doing there are, are saying in a way that there's two different words here for the word Lord. The first one is what is called the tetragrammation. Uh, It consists of of four consonants, Y-H-W, without any vowels. And uh, what this indicates is that this is the idea through the scripture of God as a a covenant-making God. It's a special divine name that God used to refer to himself when he was speaking about his covenant and a special relationship he had with the people of Israel. It was a word that only the Israelites would use in their reference to God. He says by using this word that that I am your God, that we alone have a special relationship that is separate from the relationship the rest of the world has with you. Uh, This was a word that was so revered by the Jews that they would not pronounce it. They would pronounce it actually once a year. The high priest, when he went into the tabernacle, as he uh, put the blood over the mercy seat, would lean down and whisper this word the only time it was ever said during that time. So it was a a sacred word uh, that the Jews used to refer to the blessed, the covenant relationship that they had with God that God used in reference to his relationship to them. So there's this word, O Lord, and often when we read or study this uh, in commentaries or men write about it, they use either the word uh, Yahweh or the word Jehovah to refer to this word Lord here. We really don't know how it was pronounced because it was never given any vowels in the Hebrew manuscript. That's how sacred the word was. And the second word, our Lord, is the normal word for Lord, which is the word Adonai. And it could be a word used to uh, to basically uh, convey any Lord-Master relationship. A, A slave would refer to his father or his master with these words. A son could refer to his father with this word Lord here. So there's the the special name that God uses for his people, and then there's this word simply says Lord Master, indicating there is a a master-servant relationship. So one is a a special covenant, uh, intimate word he uses to refer to God, and the second is simply the word for 
master or Lord. Now, he's also expressing intimacy here, not just with the word uh, Lord here, the first word Lord or Yahweh. He's also expressing an intimacy here with the word our. When we use a possessive pronoun, we're expressing that there is a special relationship between that person and the person I'm referring to. Uh, for example, if I say, if I talk to, about my wife Geneva, and I say, Geneva is a wife, that's it, He's, she's a wife, and I don't use a pronoun, I'm simply saying that she has a special relationship with some man, uh, the relationship of husband and wife. But if I say she's my wife, I'm speaking in a much more intimate way, I'm saying that we now have a relationship the responsibility of husband and wife. I'm saying to her that, or to you about her that I have a special relationship with her. I have certain duties, certain obligations, certain intimacies with her that nobody else shares in the world. And she, to me, is, is the same way. There's intimacies and relationship and responsibilities she has with me that no other person shares. And that's what's indicated here by this word, our. He's our Lord. He's unique to us. He is our Lord, the Lord, that we have a special, unique relationship that is also indicated by this word, Lord, uh, the word Yahweh. So don't let the word our there escape your notice. It's a very important word that says, look, we are his. We bear a special relationship to this God because we call him our God. We are his people and he is our God. And there are many implications that come out between because of that relationship. And David is using these words to introduce a, a praise to God for his creation. The praise starts with this. How majestic is your name in all the earth. It is an acknowledgement of the glory of God that he reveals to his people through creation. Uh, his name is majestic over all the earth. Uh, there is a vastness, a beauty, an unspeakable greatness that is present in creation that points to the Lord's majesty, his glory, his power, his brilliance, his wisdom. Uh, through this vastness, it's over all the earth. It is only for those who God has made this covenant with. They, it is only they who see and acknowledge this majesty. A majesty that God has is something that uh, is not something he keeps to himself. It's something that he displays in the heavens. Uh, you children, your parents have shelves in your house, right? Now, what do they put on those shelves? What, what do they stack there? Is it just common stuff? Do they put a, you know, in the middle of your living room, above your TV, or on your mantle of your fireplace, do they put a, a, an apple core or an old T-shirt up there for people to see? No, they, they put special things up there, things that are unique that they find are important. They have uh, shelves in your rooms. What do you put on those shelves? Well, you have any trophies? You probably put a trophy there. Why? Because you want people to see that trophy. You may have a... a you like. You may have a poster that you put on your wall. Those are all things we put in places because we want people to see them importance and how uh, unique they are. Well, the Lord in displaying his glory, he puts a big shelf into heaven so every time man looks up, he can see the glory. He sees the majesty of God in that shelf of the heavens where his glory is, is displayed. And that's what the psalmist is referring to here. This glory is displayed for all to see. And the word majesty has a wide range of normally refers to a royal majesty, that of a, a great king or a lord. It can mean beauty, honor, uh, radiance, authority, or majesty. And, and the word splendor here is the word I think that best captures the idea of what God is doing here, displaying his glory. We look at it and we say only 
a mighty God, only a glorious, powerful, all-wise God could do something like put those heavens in their place, call those heavens into existence by his very words. And when those who love the Lord the heavens, uh, they should see the Lord's majesty and offer praise to him for it as the psalmist is doing here. Now the question is, what, it is about, what is it about the creation that is this praise? Is it just a general sense of God's greatness, or is David looking at something specific, a specific part of the creation that is invoking this praise that he is praising God for? And he begins this explanation in verse 2, with these strange words, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the and the revengeful cease. And we'll see more, we'll expand more on this in our reflections. But what David is saying here is that there's a, uh, a principle in the scriptures where God seems to weak things, uh, ignorant things, foolish things, use them to display and exhibit his glory. And we'll see examples of this later into the sermon. But he's acknowledging that the God who made this heavens, uh, when he wants to destroy his adversaries or his enemies, he doesn't use anything mighty like a great army. He takes something weak and insignificant like a, a babe, a nursing babe, or an infant. Those are things that he uses in his power to bring down his enemies. Not that God has an army of babies or anything like that. It's just a symbol that God uses weak things, uh, things that we would look upon as insignificant, as useless, to bring about the destruction of his enemies. And so there's this principle that God uses foolish, weak things to accomplish his glory. And that's what he's indicating here. Again, we'll see more about this later. And there's some debate about this, but I think most of the commentators agree that this is what David is doing here. Expressing a principle that runs through the scripture that God, in demonstrating his glory on the earth, uses foolish to confound the wise and the weak to destroy the strong. Now, the contrast is explained in the remaining psalm. What is it? Where is this great contrast of the weak, uh, God using the weak to display his power? He's going to explain this in the rest of the psalm. There's a contrast here. Uh, just as you would expect a man, uh, not expect a man to use babies and infants to destroy his enemies and foes, you would not expect God to do what he's doing next. And he says this, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you should care for him or notice him? Uh, David saw an incongruity between man's uh, seemingly insignificant relation to the universe and the attention that is given to him. When he looked in the heavens, he saw this vast universe, this mighty, uh, powerful display of glory uh, there for all to see. And then he looked down at mankind, and he saw something weak and insignificant. And he's puzzled here by this contrast. Why would God make this contrast? Why would he put something like man in the middle of this creation when his great power is displayed that he could have done something much better, much more? Uh, here David again looks to the night sky, uh, sees the innumerable stars, the majestic moon. Uh, they're there unchanging night after night. They're the same heavenly bodies that Adam gazed upon, uh, the same ones that the Lord exhorted him to look upon when he made the promises, count the number of stars, so will be the number of your children. The, the very same stars... Abraham looked at, uh, David is looking at right now and offering praise to God. Uh, he knows that they will be there undiminished from generation to generation. But then he looks down at man and what does he see? Well, he sees this frail, weak, and mortal thing. When the scripture describes man, uh, what are some of the metaphors that it uses to describe? They're 
flesh. It comes and goes. It's like the, the flower of the field, the grass of the field. It's there for a minute. Uh, it exudes its glory. And then f- when the sun comes up, it's basically gone. It, it, it vanishes. Uh, Moses says this in Psalm 8, Psalm 90. Oh, we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our lives, they contain 70 years, if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. That's life to Moses, life of a mortal man. It's here for a while. While we're here, we're, we're, uh, we're sighing, we're grieving. And then after a short period of time, relatively speaking, it's gone and we fly away. Yet despite this contrast, he notes that God still has an interest in man. Uh, It is evident in the creation that God cares for him. He prompts David to ask another question. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? With this vast difference between the glory and majesty of the heavens and the weak transitory nature of man, uh, what is it makes you even think of him or take an interest in him? What is it about man uh, that, that makes you notice him and even think about him? He begins the verse again by saying, you have made him a little lower than God, indicating that there, there's nothing divine or superior about, in man's creation, yet the Lord crowns man with glory and majesty. The term here, glory and majesty, are, are words that are often reserved uh, for describing divine glory. Uh, they describe a dignity, importance, and external splendor. And, and mankind is crowned with this. It, it's set upon his head for all to see that this man, had, when you walked into a, a throne room, you could recognize the king how? Because he had a crown on his head. And when he had a crown on his head, it meant he was acting in the official capacity of a king as a sovereign. Well, David says this glory and majesty you've put on man's head, you've made it a crown for all to see and all to observe. So it is not just some theoretical uh, position he has here. It is a real position of authority and power. Now, think about what's going on through the psalmist's mind here. Uh, he sees the glorious creation. He sees the bright, innumerable stars, uh, the massive moon, and David gets a great sense of the vastness of the universe and the greatness of the Lord that created such things. Then, out of this vast, heavenly, vast, heavenly objects, here is one that stands up. I'm sorry, here. Then, out of all these heavenly objects, there's one that stands out above them, and, and it's the earth. So, he made all of the heavens, the moon, the stars, and now he looks at the earth. And what does he see upon the earth? When you read through the Genesis account, it's clear that the earth is the center of God's creating activity. The sun and the moon are given to govern and measure times and seasons on the earth. Uh, The stars there are just kind of mentioned as almost a byword. He says in Genesis 1, uh, let there be light at the expanse, in the expanse of heaven to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. So that vast heavenly realm that David is looking at, it was made for one purpose, to serve the could keep track of time and seasons. And the stars are just kind of there as, oh yeah, he made them anyway. So they're just there maybe to, to decorate or to fill empty space and sit. So all of this is focused upon the earth. And then David looks at that, that earth and who does he see is in charge of it? Who does God put over that earth? This weak, this mortal, this often ignorant human being. That's who God put upon the earth. And that's what amazes David. 
all that you did to make this earth, in light of all the power you displayed, all the wisdom that you put into making this, why did you put us dominion and power over it? Why did you put us over all this? That's the dilemma that David is facing here. What amazed him is that the focal point of God's creation, this thing that God, God gave so much attention to, what he does with it when he's finished creating it. Again, he hands it over to mankind to be governed and ruled. That's what amazes David. That's what astounds him and causes him to praise God, not only in the beginning of the psalm, but at the end of the psalm as well. For he finishes as he began. Uh, he continues here just basically explaining uh, the examples of God giving man power, authority over the earth. He said, you made him a little lower than heavenly beings. In other words, there's nothing supernatural about him. He's not an angel. There, there's nothing that you would look at and say, well, there's a divine being. Um, Again, you crown him with glory and honor. You give him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep. Notice the use of the word all here, all sheep, all oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So the, the figures here are, are the, uh, the sheep and the oxen, those animals that we domesticate, uh, those in the forest, the beasts of the field, uh, even the heavens. Man can go no higher than he could basically jump or climb. Yet God says, I, I give you authority over all the birds of the heaven. Uh, man could maybe row out a couple miles into the ocean. Uh, he couldn't go further than he could hold his breath and dive down. Yet God says, I gave you authority over all of the seas, whatever passes through the past of the sea. It's yours. You have authority over it. From the minnow to the whale, it's under your authority and your control. So the authority is extensive. Uh, it's expansive. It's complete. Everything that exists is under man's authority and man's control. And, and that is what puzzles David. And he finishes the psalm with these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name over all the earth. Now, what makes the psalm, again, is inclusio, is that this is what, what is said at the beginning, and it's also said at the end. Uh, again, the way it functions is that there should be a heightened sense of whatever was stated first by the time you get to the end of the psalm. So you may start out with a, if you're an example of this, let's say you were reading this in a congregation. And um, I read this psalm, and let's say we were an interactive congregation. It said amen a lot. Uh, I may say, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name over all the earth. And I may get a few amens, a few mumbles of amen. And by the time I finish this, and, and you realize what David is saying, there should be a loud, unified Praise God. He is majestic over all the earth. So in reading this psalm, when you read it, you don't simply say, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name over all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Da, 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 da. When, you look at the he when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. Da, 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 da. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the birds, heavens, the birds of the sea. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's not how you read it. By the time you're done, there should be an intense... Uh, intensified sense of God's majesty and God's glory because what has been said in the psalm. And the fact that you probably don't sense that just is my lack as a preacher, but that's the way we should feel. And we sh there should be a heightened sense of, of God's glory, of God's majesty. When we look at God and see what he's made in the universe and then look down upon the creation and see that God has put man over these things, it should just amaze us. Uh, to the infinite degree that God has done such a thing. Now, some reflections upon this. 
We've seen a psalm in its original context, uh, the way it would have been uh, read by a Jew at the time of the writing, maybe a few decades or even centuries after that. Now let's expand on some of the theology and look at it in light of the rest of scriptures. First of all, Psalm 8 is often used as a way to, uh, to confirm what we call natural theology. It's saying here that the unbeliever should be able to look upon the heavens and see God's glory and therefore believe in God. It's a sort of a natural stepping stone to the gospel. Uh, they should look at creation and, and praise God in pretty much the same way that David does. And this is simply not the case here. Remember, David here is speaking not as an unbeliever, a man alienated from God. He's speaking as a man who has a special relationship with God, who God, who has opened his eyes to show him something about his glory. So he can look at the heavens and make the connection between what he sees, what has been done, and the God who made a covenant with him, the God he is in relationship with, an unbeliever cannot see that. He can say, yes, there is some being behind all this. There's some intelligence that is here. But they have no idea who that intelligence is until God's open, God opens their eyes and shows them that the Lord of the scriptures is the one who did that and put that there. Again, this is the man who knows the Lord, one who has a covenant relationship with God. He's the one who can truly say, our Lord, and look at the creation and praise his Lord for that work. Um, a, a way to explain this is to show how our knowledge of the creation grows. As it grows, you would think it would make atheism become weaker and weaker, and there'd be less and less atheists. Uh, we know things about the creation that David had no idea about. Uh, David just saw a massive expanse in the stars. He knew it was big. He knew it was beautiful. Uh, he knew it took great wisdom to create it. But he didn't know very much about the details. Many of those came uh, later as our scientific uh, processes advanced. Uh, for example, David didn't know that there were galaxies. He didn't know that there were billions of these galaxies, that each one contained billions and billions of stars. Uh, some of these stars are, are so big that if you were to take a modern airliner and fly it around the crater, airliner flies just a little bit below the speed of sound, like 0.8 or, or 0.85 Mach, uh, so maybe, I think, 600 miles an hour. If you were to fly a modern jet airliner around the circumference of these stars, it would take almost 3,000 years to make the journey. That's how big some of these stars are. And those are just the biggest ones of maybe the two or 3,000 of the trillions of stars that exist. David had no idea that the universe was that big, was that massive. Um, it's estimated there are two trillion galaxies in the universe. Uh, there's a, a case where the, uh, they used this, the Hubble telescope. They picked a, a very tiny, tiny, like a pinpoint area of space and just shown that telescope in what they thought was going to be just empty. And they let, let it shine in that one area and collect light for, I think, weeks or maybe even months. And when they looked at the pictures, they found thousands and thousands of these dots, these little points of light. And what they were, they were galaxies. They're, they thought it was just empty, dead space. When they looked at it closely, they saw thousands of galaxies. <laughs> Mic off. All right, I'll lean forward. Can anybody hear me now? I'll try to lean forward and speak to the microphone until we get it back. Yeah, I see people back there got hit by it. So th there's the, these, and when they looked at that and they calculated, they, they figured that there were 
over two or three trillion galaxies in the universe. Some of these galaxies like ours, uh, which is a, a, a medium-sized galaxy, contain uh, 50 or 60 billion stars in them. David had no idea these things existed. Uh, when we measure distances in space, uh, we use the speed of light. Now, the speed of light goes, I think, 300 million meters per second, which is about 168,000 miles per second. And when we measure distances, we take the amount of light that travels in a year, and that's sort of the, the little tiny hash mark on the measuring stick we use to measure the universe. Uh, an example of how much this is, is the, what the Viking uh, space probe was sent out, I think, in 78, 77 or 78. And sometime during Obama's administration, 2010 or 11, it, it broke through the universe, or not the universe, the uh, solar system. There's a little pop that it registered when it broke through this invisible shield that's at the edge of our solar system. And it's traveling to the nearest star in our, to, in our galaxy, to Earth. And it's traveling at 70,000 miles per hour. And it'll continue at that speed indefinitely. It's gonna take it 40,000 years to reach the closest star. And that star is only four light years away. And they say the universe is 45 billion light years in diameter, the known universe. David had no idea about this, not a clue. And yet there's all this information that we have. And the astronomer, the average astronomer, looks out of his telescope at night. He sees this and he knows this and understands it. And does that make him a Christian? No, most of these men are unbelievers. And almost all of them are atheists. It doesn't register. The more we learn about the universe, the more likely man is to become a Christian or even a believer. So that's not what's happening here. And so I'm listening to a, um, a podcast. It's like 40 or 50, uh, uh, two to three hour podcast by this guy who's a, a specialist in the central nervous system. And uh, he just talks about what our nervous system is like, what it does, about sleep, about learning, uh, diet, how it affects everything. And I listen, and it just it completely blows my mind to hear these things, how our body works. And I, I listen to it, and I have to turn it off and, and come tell Geneva what I just learned. I get so excited about it. I'll be on a walk, and I can't wait to get home to tell Geneva or somebody what this guy has just said about how God has made our bodies. And this guy knows all this stuff, and, and far more than he's explaining in his podcast. He studied it firsthand. He's conducted some of these world-famous tests that led to these discoveries. Yet this man is a, a complete atheist. He believed all of it came about through some naturalistic process of evolution. So does that knowledge produce in him the ability or the desire to praise God as David is here? No, it doesn't. So what we're talking about here is, is a knowledge that God gives to people that causes them to see uh, the true nature of reality, the true nature of who the Lord is and what he has done. Therefore, we can call him our Lord when we praise him. We may not use that, that covenant name that Israel used, but we think in our minds that this is a God who made a covenant with us, the same one who made the heavens, who laid the stars in their place, that set those massive galaxies hundreds of light years apart and made them hundreds of light years in diameter, that, that filled them with hundreds of billions of stars and planets. That God is our God. The unbeliever cannot say that, and it should invoke an unending praise in our hearts to such a God. Second, there's a principle here that I want to express uh, in the scriptures that is important through all of the Bible. That, that one of the major themes that we see everywhere, that, that is that God in, in 
doing his work and displaying his glory chooses weak and ignorant things to show that glory, to show his power. Think of the, the choosing of the nation Israel. What type of people did God choose to establish his kingdom, to, to bring into a land, to give a Messiah, to uh, set up a kingdom with and ultimately rule through? What kind of nation did God choose? Did he go out and find a powerful group of people? Okay, these guys, they have the biggest army. Uh, they have the, the best libraries. Uh, every, everything fits my pattern of strength and power. So I will use them and then bring about my glory, my purposes through them. No, he, he's a group of nomads living in the middle of, of, of nowhere. Brought them to a land. Made promises to them. Built them to a nation and used them to bring the Messiah that would save the world and through who would establish Lord's dominion and power over the earth. He says this in Deuteronomy 7, reminding the people as they go into the land. He says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Again, there's that, the Lord your God. Same a phrase here David uses, the Lord, the tetragrammation, Yahweh, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the people who are in the face of the earth, he chose you, for you were fewest of all people. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were weak. They were the fewest of people. Not only that, but he, he enslaved them. He made them a shepherds, which were despised among the nations. He enslaved them for centuries, then brought them out as slaves and set up a kingdom with them. No, no group of slaves was going to break the bondage of, of Egypt by themselves. It was clear, even to the nations, uh, decades later, uh, when the nations heard of Israel, it says they feared because they heard what the Lord had done and bring them out of Israel. No group of slaves was going to break the yoke of Egypt. So all through the scripture, starting with Israel, we see this pattern here. Uh, we see it exemplified in our, our Savior, the method through which God saves us, or the person that God saves us through. Uh, Christ saved us how? Through a death. Through a death that was considered an execution. Now to the Greeks and Romans, this would have been uh, idiotic to claim a man who could not save himself, uh, making the claim to be the Savior of the world. And this was one of the, the ways that the, the people at the cross mocked him. Look, you expect him to be your savior, and he can't even save himself. He could command a legion of angels to come and remove him, but he chooses not to. He's going to let this happen to himself, and you're going to put your faith and trust in him to save you? To the Jew or the Gentile, the Roman, that was just purely idiotic to say that is your savior. He cannot even save himself. would have been laughable. Uh, then there's the means of the execution, the cross. Any first century Jew would have seen a crucified Savior as an utter abomination. Uh, the reason they saw the crucifixion, it was a sign of a man being under the curse of God based on their interpretation of Deuteronomy 21, 23. It says this, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed from God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And the Jews saw a crucifixion as an application of this passage. Anybody who was crucified fit the condition of this man. He was cursed of God, and even, him, even leaving his corpse on the tree overnight would bring a curse to the land of Israel. That's how bad this was. And that's how they saw the person of Christ. As cursed of God, and we better get him down because he's going to curse us as well. That's how defiled he is. Yet that's the Savior 
that God presented the Jews. The Muslims to this day deny the cross because they think, how, how, why would God let a prophet of God die that way? No prophet deserves that type of death. That's what Muslims believe about the crucifixion. So they go, they have like a swoon theory where he didn't really die with somebody else. So this idea of a, a, a executed savior who cannot save himself, a savior who was crucified as an indication, he was cursed of God, would have been completely anathema to any person living in the first century. You ever see that, uh, it's a meme on Facebook where there's a, showing outside of a building and uh, there's a manager making, asking questions, people to make suggestions, and there's two or three people at the table, and each makes a suggestion, and the one makes one so ridiculous, the next frame, you see him flying out the window. Well, imagine you know, sitting down, coming up with a way to, to reach the most people in the first century. If somebody were to say, let's have a crucified savior, that person would have been out the window in a matter of seconds. So it's a ridiculous idea, one that would have offended every sensible person in the ancient world. Yet it's the means that God used to bring salvation to us. Again, if you sit down the first century with a, uh, again, a committee to come up with a gospel, the last thing you would do to attract people is pick a gospel like this. Again, yet it's what God did. It's summed up perfectly in 1 Corinthians 1.8. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Preaching a crucified Savior is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet those who are called for, from both the Jews and Gentiles, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This, Paul, this is done, Paul says, uh, so that man may not boast in God. If God could use a, a crucified Savior to save man out of first century Israel and the surrounding nations, that demonstrates that it is God doing the work. So that way no man can say, well, I preached such a, a, a tantalizing message, such a humorous message that, that I know that somehow I was involved in this man's salvation. No, Paul said, I came and I preached Christ and I preached him crucified. Those parts of the gospel that I knew would inflame the passions of man against the gospel, I preached those very words. I, I define my gospel by those words. And he said, I do it. Why? because it's a demonstration of the power of God when a man comes to a savior that has been crucified as our savior was crucified. So in your salvation, what brought you to Christ was not your abilities, not your efforts, not your works. It was you seeing your utter helplessness, seeing a crucified savior who, who died for you and then believing in that savior as someone who is adequate, willing, and fully capable of saving you. And the idea that that was a crucified savior to the ancient world would have been utter reprehensible. It would have been evidence beyond a doubt that it was God who truly saved that man or woman. And that's the same gospel we offer today. Uh, you go, those scientists who uh, study the stars, who study the nervous system, uh, you tell them that a, a crucified savior is the one who saved you. Uh, you may not get quite the, uh, the reprehension or the disgust that the first century Jew, Jew did, but there's still going to be an intellectual uh, disgust with this idea. They, I'm supposed to give myself to a crucified savior, somebody who died uh, 2,000 years ago. Somebody who you claim rose from the dead, I'm supposed to put my faith in him? Uh, it's not going to happen unless the power of God is evident to bring salvation to that person. So the same offer is here today. 
What do you believe about Christ? What do you think about him? Is it foolishness? Is it stupidity? Or do you see him as a savior, one who is capable and willing to save your souls? I remember reading Shedd, uh, G.T. Shedd years ago, and he said, a man who is, is truly convicted under the spirit of the depth of his sin and, and, and the nature of the condemnation that is upon him, no idea of a cross or a dying savior is gonna impede him in coming to Christ when he finally sees who Christ really is. And that's what we're presenting today, who Christ really is. He's a savior who died for you, who gave his life for you, so that all you have to do, again, all is a big word here, but all you do is believe, trust that you are incapable of saving yourself, yet he is willing and able to save you. Once that happens, there's a complete forgiveness, there's a complete salvation that will Lord promises will continue until the end. Now, one more idea that we're going to express here. We're going to finish up next week for a couple reasons. Uh, when the New Testament writers read this psalm, or when they looked out upon the, the world, uh, they noticed something, and particularly the writer of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 2. He says, look, he quotes this psalm and says, God uh, put man over everything. Uh, man is, is in dominion. He has authority, power over every part of the universe. Yet he says, you know, we don't see that right now. There's an incongruity between what is promised here and what we see. Yeah, man has authority, he has power, but if you look at the world, it's not the right authority, it's not the right power. It's a power that is abused, that is twisted, that is distorted, that brings about a great human suffering. More suffering has come about because of man's misabuse of power than probably anything else in the world. And so, yeah, we read this, we see what David says, we believe it, but why when we look out in the world, do we not see the world set up like God, like we think it should be, like God says it will be? Well, what the writers of the New Testament do is they take this psalm and they tie it with Psalm 110. Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. And that is how this psalm comes to be used in the New Testament, as combined with Christ's power, with Christ's authority that God gave him after the resurrection, we see this psalm fulfilled in all of its beauty and all of its glory. And next week, we're going to combine what we learned today with Psalm 110 and how it was used and kind of draw these two ideas together of man's authority, man's dominion over the earth, and Christ's final secession on the throne of God to rule the earth as God intended man actually rule. And it's just, it's rich with theology. It's a beautiful thing to look at. So I hope to bring some of that, the glory and beauty out of that next week for us. But I hope that there's been enough here to end with an understanding of your need for Christ and his willingness to save you. That's the goal of all preaching. Uh, T uh, Timothy Keller's wife said in one time, that, you know, until you get to Christ, uh, your sermon is just a Sunday school lesson. So I hope this has gone beyond a Sunday school lesson uh, to show you uh, who Christ is, that he is your savior, who you are, that you are a sinner in need of a savior, and that he willingly, adequately, and, and joyfully fulfills that role and invites you to come. He promises, all who come to me, none will I ever cast out. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That is a promise of Christ that stands before all of us uh, to come believe and trust. And as all we can all testify here who have believed, he is indeed a great mighty Savior. So if you have questions about this gospel, if you're here visiting, never heard this before, maybe heard something in a way you, you never thought of, then, and come to an elder, me or anybody will direct you to an elder or somebody who can talk more 
about what Christ does for us and invite you into a community of people who love Christ together and, and bring you with us on that journey. It's not coming here accepting Christ and walking away. It's coming joining a people who love Christ the same way to help you love him more and help you serve him through uh, a body of believers.